Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray for a reset of perspective in our nation. That the recognition that we really don't have control and that all that comes to us comes. That is good comes from you. And Lord, this morning here, I pray the lost will be saved. Those who think they're saved but aren't will be really saved. And the saved will return to the priority of caring about those who don't know you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Turn to Acts chapter 13 with me. Acts chapter 13. That's the fifth book in the New Testament. If you're new to the scripture. And uh, we'll start with the fourth verse. Uh, By the way, where this is, is this is Paul who's been 14 years on staff at the Antioch Church. Um, Now sails with Barnabas on the first missionary journey. So let's pick up there. Verse 4, Acts chapter 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. That would be John Mark, right? Young at that point. Neither the apostle nor the Baptist. Uh, And they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, They found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, that is Roman for governor, so he's the governor of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul, brought them to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for his name is so translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him. And he said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, the son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for some time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about asking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So from this passage, we're going to look at three very different kind of people. Elymas the magician, Sergius Paulus the Roman governor, and Saul of Tarsus. And in this passage, as you know, his name change occurs, but prior to this time called Saul, uh, in the story, Saul, uh, there's, so there's three, th- three kinds in this sense. Saul has already been saved. More on that in a minute. Paulus, the governor, gets saved. And we never hear about Elymas again, so we don't know what happens in Elymas' life um, later. So um, as we begin, I-, I need to point something out that's been going on in the church for decades. I'm talking now about the broader church in our country. Um, 
it's the aversion to talk about being lost. And today that concept has been replaced by an idea that everyone is simply on a journey. Uh, how many times have you heard that word on TV preaching? Um, even if a person is straying from God or following their own plan, the verbiage implies that pretty much everyone ends up all right at the end. After all, they're on a journey. And the basic idea is that people are victims. So if they hadn't been mistreated as a kid or misunderstood or if they hadn't been ripped off by the system, they'd actually be good. And in this new way of thinking, our problem isn't original sin, the historic biblical doctrine from the time of Genesis. Our problem isn't original sin. Our problem is original misfortune. We're just victims. So unless you're a Hitler, a Stalin, or a Mao Zedong, you're basically a good person. And in the end, God will say, well, you weren't perfect, but you pretty much did as well as anybody could have expected. See, this concept is treacherous in two ways. First, if a person is journeying away from God and they don't repent and turn around, they'll end up separated from him. So the journey doesn't necessarily imply a good outcome. And then second, and more importantly, Jesus didn't come to the earth for unfortunate victims. He didn't die on the cross to help misguided, dysfunctional folks who are a bit imperfect. No, Jesus made his mission absolutely clear in Luke 19.10. This is your first notes. Oh, by the way, Andy, have we, uh, would you have somebody stroll around with the notes? Sorry about that. But uh, here's your first blank if you happen to pick them up and look for a writing utensil and grab the notes as you come by. Here it comes right from the text, the fundamental purpose of the incarnation, why Jesus came, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the fundamental reason why Jesus came. This teaching has been the basis for understanding all of biblical history. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this doctrine. This is great insight. Here's your, here's your blanks. Humans are not merely imperfect creatures that must be improved. Everybody got that? Humans are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are actually rebels who must lay down our arms. Are you guys seeing this on the, script, on the screen? Okay, I just can't see it up there, so... Um, and he goes on. Let's look at this. Uh, this will also be up there. This is, Lewis goes on. Look at this. To render our will, right, my way, to render our will back to God, which we have claimed for our own, is a grievous pain. In fact, the most precise description is that it's just like dying. Giving our will back to God is like a death, Right? And this is why the scripture teaches that if we're going to really follow Christ, we have to die every day. So here's what shouldn't be missed. Jesus doesn't have anything to offer people who think they're basically good. He can't save people who don't think they're lost. In fact, here, here's an irony. People love to talk about mercy, but if judgment isn't due, mercy isn't needed. If judgment isn't due, we don't need mercy. If we're all fundamentally good and everything's going to be fine in the end, folks, we don't need a Savior. In fact, if we're good, we don't need Jesus. 
Because Jesus came for lost people, not just people who need counsel. So, Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And now, let's look at the three lost guys in the passage from Acts. Remember one who was lost, Saul. We'll see some of his description of his life before he came to Christ. Sergius Paulos, who gets saved, and Elymas, who we're not sure what happens to him. I find this really instructive because I think this basically, these three guys basically represent the three basic ways that we separate ourselves from God, that humans separate ourselves from God. So here's lost guy number one. Here's your blank. Lost guy number one who was Elymas the magician. He was lost because he was bad. (laughs) I mean, look at this. Look what Acts 13 says about Elymas. He was a sorcerer dealing with dark magic, a false prophet leading people away from God, an opposer of those who spoke God's word. And I loved the way, you know, Paul, he really preached nice, didn't he? You are full of deceit and fraud, a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness, twisting God's ways, blind and full of darkness. So lost guy number one was an easy to identify sinner, right? He was just bad. Lost guy number two, Sergius Paulus. He was lost, here's your blank, he was lost because he had it all and he didn't need God. Look with me again at verse six. Verse six, we see a description here. Verse six, and when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bargesus or Elymas as we find out later, right? who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this text tells us three things about him. He was a governor of Cyprus, he was intelligent, and he allowed a bad man to give him counsel. Right? Those are the three things, basically, that we know about this guy. And as with many intellectuals, He let his mind get in the way of the truth. Despite his intelligence, he kept a false prophet close by. He chose a counselor who tried to turn him away from God. That was, sounds like his right-hand man. But he was also governor, and that meant he had power, position, prestige, and wealth. Okay, all of those would have gone on with being the Roman governor. So why would a smart, powerful, prestigious, affluent person be lost? Because he had pretty much everything a human could want. After all, who needs God when you have what the world can give you? So, interestingly enough, Sergius Paulus was far from God because God had been so good to him. Talk about an irony, huh? Now, Here is the irony. Listen up, Americans. The reason Sergius Paulus was lost is because God blessed him. And then lost guy number three, Saul of Tarsus. Well, now I have to go back in other scripture to hear of Paul, Saul, before he was saved. But look at this one. Saul of Tarsus was lost because he was good. See, there's a remarkable passage in Philippians 3, you've probably read it, where the Apostle Paul talks about what he was like before he came to Christ. And he makes this staggering statement. It's in your notes. Look at this. This is right out of the Scripture. Write it in. When it comes to righteousness, Saul talking about himself. 
when it comes to righteousness that is found in the law, I was blameless. This is an amazing statement. In the Greek, this word is teleos. It means flawless or perfect. Saul's saying, when it comes to following the rules, following the law, I was perfect. I was blameless. I was complete. What an amazing thing. So Paul followed up with the, followed the rules with great precision, precision and zeal. He was righteous. And yet, as you know, after he came to Christ, he took all of that righteousness and he put it on a pile of what the text actually says is dung, right? In fact, my understanding is there are three Greek words for dung, and Paul used the most vulgar of them, but you can't say that in church. That's what he thought about his prior righteousness, which was in the law. In fact, he called himself, you ready for this? I was found perfect, and I was the chief of sinners. So how in the world, that makes no sense, right? How in the world could he be good and a champion of evil? And listen, church, because pride is the great sin. Spiritual pride is the gigantic sin that taints all righteousness. He was the chief of sinners because he was righteous in himself. So... Some people really are separated from God by evil, but you know what? A lot of people are separated from God by our righteousness. So I want to make sure we don't miss something. There are two kinds of this kind of lost, okay? Sorry about that, but there's three kinds of lost, and this is the third one, but there's two kinds of the third kind of lost, all right? We actually see the first one in the rigid legalistic rule follower like Saul was before he came to Christ. Yes, there are legalists who are lost because they believe they're righteous. Um, But this is really a key. There's a second way for a person's goodness to separate them from God. And in our culture and even in the church, there's a boatload of people like this. They think that they're good enough for God because they don't actually think they're all that bad. After all, I'm an American and I pay my taxes. I'm not all that bad. That will separate a person from God every bit as much as murder. I'm good enough for God because I'm not all that bad. See, I think this is the average American. Um, It makes us feel pretty good because we can look around and see lots of people who are worse than us. And after all, being law-abiding, hard-working citizens... Certainly God must think we're pretty impressive. See, it's not that they think they're perfect. And the key is we think we do more good things than bad. And in the end, God's going to look and say, well, you know what? Those few minor infractions, they're offset by the amazing guy that you are. This is a second way to be lost because you think you're good. Here's the problem. Regular old nice people need a savior every bit as much as mean, wicked scoundrels do. And in fact, Lewis is brilliant on this in Mere Christianity. If you read it, look for this. They may need a savior more. Regular old nice people may need a savior more because they think they're good enough. That's just like Saul of Tarsus minus the legalism. I'm good enough for God. 
You see, so there's a bottom line about humanity. Every human, no matter how good or bad, is lost unless they repent of their sins and turn to Christ as their only hope. So here's the key concept. Write it in. And now the, now the mean, tough, ugly part of the message is over. You're going to be happy. Here it is. Key concept. This kind of lostness, lost guy number three, includes nice people who think they're just fine. So now the scripture has made it very clear. Jesus came as Savior. He didn't come as anything else until he first comes as Savior. But here's the paradox. Now that we've established that people are lost, we're ready to actually hear the good news. But first, we have to blow away a misunderstanding that many people have about God. You know, most people's idea of God is fairly wrathful and fairly mean-spirited and vengeful. They think he's always looking around for things to punish people for, but this couldn't be further from the truth. So we're going to see a series of scriptures throughout, literally all the way from Exodus to Revelation. And we're going to start with the one in Revelation. This is one that I'll show you on the screen. And this is actually the literal Greek. Your translation may say this differently, but the literal Greek says this in Revelation about Jesus. Look at this. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Now I want you to think about what that means. In the heart of the, and the will of the Father, Jesus the Son was crucified before the world was even created, before we fell, before anyone ever sinned. The means, that means that before the world existed, Jesus was already, listen, Jesus was already Savior before the world even existed. And this is a profound implication. Write it in. At his deepest essence, Before there was even anyone who needed saving, at his deepest essence, here's your blank, God is Savior. See, he finds his greatest joy in saving. He would always rather save than judge. And if you think there's a mean Old Testament God, this is some people's view. I read the the right 20% of the Bible because the left uh, 80% has this mean Old Testament God, but fortunately, Jesus came and he's really nice and he got in the way of the Father so the Father wouldn't kill me. That's the cliff notes of the Old Testament for some people. Do you realize how far off that is? The reality is Savior is who God has always been, and this is repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. He is relentless in his pursuit of those who run from him. Let's look at a great example, Isaiah. Isaiah, so if you uh, aren't familiar with the Old Testament, go to the middle, it'll fall open at the Psalms. Go about three chapters to the right, and you find the first of the major prophets. It's pretty easy to find. It's 66 books long, so it's, it's not like getting lost in the minor prophets. Find Isaiah chapter 65, and look With me at 65, verse 1. Isaiah 65, verse 1. It'll also be on the screen. I permitted myself, God speaking, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. (laughs) I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I. Here am I. Think of that. The creator calling to the creature. To a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following after their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. 
You realize God has no self-respect? Here's a people who provoke him to his face and he says, oh, please, please, I want to be your friend. I have all power and I want to be your friend. It's amazing. Every human that's ever been saved, friends, is saved because God pursued them. If you ever think you made a good decision and that's how you got saved, you're completely misunderstanding a biblical theology, which is, I think, very helpful. It's called, the theologians call it prevenient grace. It literally, prevenient in the Latin, it means going before. So this is the grace that goes before. So this is what drug us kicking and screaming before we were even believers to God so that we were ready to say, okay, Lord, for some of us that took a lot of pain. For others, we were just so astounded by his love. But in every case, he sought us. That's why Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. But Jesus has chosen everyone for the purpose of salvation. The question is, will they respond? So look at verse one more time. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. And so we saw provenient grace in lost guy number two, right? In Sergius Paulus, what we saw was despite the fact that he had everything a person could want and he really didn't need God, and despite that he was surrounded by a bad guy giving him bad counsel, notice what was happening in his heart when Paul and Barnabas show up. Look at the text. This man, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. See, before he was saved, God was already drawing someone who had not sought him. See, God's grace had prepared his heart for an immediate response. And look in verse 12. It's amazing. It's just like this. This guy with power and money and prestige and wealth and doesn't need God. But because God is drawn, then the proconsul, here's the text in verse 12. He believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So this morning, we're going to look at the, 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 the premier picture of salvation in the Old Testament. The story of the Exodus. You can start turning there if you want. It's the second book in the Bible. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for four centuries, but God heard their cry, and he sent Moses to deliver them. You're probably, anybody who's essentially ever watched movies is familiar with this story. Um, you don't even have to see it in the Bible, and our God is so good at getting to us. This is this fundamental salvation story, and as you know, Moses says, hey, God's going to get his people out of here, so why don't you join God, and, and God's going to give you a bunch of uh, information and each plague was information. Each plague, ready, was provenient grace for Pharaoh to finally say, I'm not God. I'll join God. Every single plague was God's grace trying to save Pharaoh. And so we see that happening. And notice it finally comes to plague number 10. This is ugly. Verse 12, chapter 12, Exodus. For I will go throughout the land, God through Moses, the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But in the midst of this horrible plague, God has a saving plan. Look at this. Look at verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall make a, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians 
and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house or to smite you. This is the pivotal event in the history of Israel. It's not giving the law. In fact, do you know, it is going to be many months before the law is given. Remember always, you don't get the law, start being good and get saved. God comes and says, oh, slaves who everybody thinks worthless, the Egyptians think that you're more valuable, uh, less valuable than their dogs. I'll pick you. Saved. Baptized, dead, and buried in the Red Sea and just saved. How good were they? They were worthless slaves. Always the picture of salvation. God draws, God saves, and then he says, you want to be like me? Always the way salvation is. This is the picture. So look with me. Here's the pivotal historical event. Here's your blanks. With the exception of the coming of Messiah, this is the greatest event in the history of the nation of Israel. Now what's tragic is they're still looking back 3,400 years every, uh, every spring instead of picking up on the Messiah, the greatest event. But for all time, notice, Israel was supposed to remember this Passover event as the ultimate picture of God's deliverance and salvation. Look at verse 24. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. So not only is he saying, here's what you're going to do and I'm going to save you in this event. He says, and there's going to be a celebration, an ordinance that you're going to do forever. Of course, the forever now is in Christ, the Passover lamb. Verse 25 And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, that you shall observe this rite. And it will come about when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? That you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt. And he smote the Egyptians, but he spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Since most of us aren't Jewish, and since we're separated by this event for 3,400 years, it's really hard to comprehend how incredibly significant the Jewish celebration of Passover it is. It was absolutely essential to them. See, without the sacrifice of the lamb, there was no forgiveness of sin. Without the blood of the lamb, everyone in Israel was lost. So here's your next blank. What Passover means to the Hebrews Without Passover, there was no salvation in Israel. Literally, you can put from global history, without Messiah, there was no salvation in the world. But notice, this is the preparation. This is without Passover, without the lamb, which we'll get to the real lamb someday, but without the lamb, there's no salvation in Israel. Without Passover, an Israelite was lost without hope. So I'd like us to see how Passover shows how far God will go to save. In fact, within the details of the ordinance itself, we'll find that God can even save people who are too late to save. To see this, let's look at the specific date on the Hebrew calendar when they were supposed to celebrate the Passover each year. Okay, look at verse 17. Here's the specifics of when they're supposed to do Passover in the future. Verse 17. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Feast of Passover. On the very day that I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt, therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. Here comes the date. In the first month, that's the month Nisan on the Hebrew calendar, 
In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat the unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Okay, so notice, this is the key day. If you know people who are observing Jews, they, this is the key day on the Hebrew calendar. It's above all other days. Write it in. The key day on the entire Jewish calendar, here it is. The 14th day of Nisan was the day of salvation. Nisan 14 was the day when they were passed over and pardoned from their death sentence and the day when sins were forgiven. So there was a very specific day of salvation in Israel. But this created a potential problem, right? To be eligible, a person couldn't be ceremonially unclean. So there were many things they could do to become unclean. For example, if they helped bury a dead body, they were unclean for seven days by the law. And if that happened to be bad timing, you couldn't take Passover. In fact, let's look at one of these stories where a Hebrew missed the Passover. Turn with me to Numbers. So you're in Exodus. The next book is Leviticus. And then the book after that is Numbers. Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9, starting with verse 1. We're going to hear about the Passover and somebody who missed it. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month, Nisan, of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at the appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall observe it at the appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. And they observed the Passover in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all the Lord that had commanded Moses. So the sons of Israel did. But look, complication. But there were some men who were unclean because of a dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. This is bad deal. Think about this. They missed the day of salvation. These are Hebrews where the only salvation is in the Passover lamb, in Passover, and they missed it. They missed it. This is a big deal. We, again, we can hardly understand this, but look how the, con the passage continues. Verse, verse 6 again. But there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so that they could not observe the Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day, and these men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering to the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? These guys are riled up. This is not like missing, this is like not, you poor guys that didn't go out of get to go out of town for the holiday, right? You're stuck here. This is not just like missing a holiday. These guys are riled up. They have gone, individuals have gone with two million people all the way to the top to Moses and Aaron because they are so worked up about this. Verse 8. Moses therefore said to them, wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and saying, if any one of you or your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. Look at this. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall, so it's the next month. They shall eat it, uh, uh, unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So wh what an amazing God we have, right? W one of the most consistent attributes of biblical history is that God 
goes to incredible lengths to save people. And in this case, God will save people who it's too late to save. We're going to come back to this. But there may be some here this morning that knowing what you've done, you're just thinking, it's too late. I'll go to church and I'll try to be a good person, but there's just no way. It's too late for me. What I've done, this is an amazing concept. Who would have thought in numbers is God's announcement of his amazing salvation? So, um, now you'll see in a moment um, why this matters, okay? But I want to connect some, Old Testament, some New Testament verses to this Old Testament concept, right? It turns out in Galatians, there's a direct connection between Abraham and us. And uh, there may not be any Hebrews uh, here this morning, um, assuming we may all be non, non-Hebrews or Gentiles. <coughs> there's a striking relationship between us and Abraham, which is astounding because he, he lived 4,000 years ago. Galatians 3 tells us that in the New Covenant, believing in Jesus makes a person a child of Abraham. You'll think, oh yeah, who cares? Theology, go to seminary for stuff like that. You'll see why this matters. In a spiritual sense, being a child of Abraham isn't really about being Jewish. It's about having faith in Christ. So here's the key concept, write it in your notes. Here's the key concept number one. All Christians are spiritual children of Abraham. And now let's connect this concept to a statement made by John the Baptist. You'll see in a minute why all this comes together and why it matters. Listen to John the Baptist. He was speaking to the Israelites who thought they were saved because they were Jewish. They believed that being a descendant of Abraham was what saved them. Okay? So John the Baptist corrected this wrong belief. Look at Luke 3.8. It'll be on the screen. Look at this. Do not, John the Baptist speaking, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. By the way, this is the kind of stuff that got John the Baptist in big trouble repeatedly. He now is going to take their very essence. They're a Jewish. They're a Hebrew. They're a son of Abraham. They are God's people. And you ready what John the Baptist says? He completely disrespects everything about them in the next statement. Look at this. For I, by the way, uh, many preachers have done that to you before, so you know, don't feel too badly for them. You've had it too. Look at this. Say... I say to you that God is able from these stones. He points clearly to some rocks on the ground. If God wants to, from these stones, he can raise up children to Abraham. (laughs) I mean, he completely throws out everything that is saving to them. He says, there's nothing special. You're no more God's people than that rock is. Now, the literal meaning of this verse is really simple, right? God's the creator of everything that exists. In fact, he made the first human from the dust of the earth. This is no news, right? He can literally take dirt and make it into a living being. He can make a rock into a person. In fact, that's exactly how he made Adam. He took some, you know, crumbled rock, which is what dirt is, crumbled rock, and he said, Adam, boom, there it is. So notice, he was saying, he, he wasn't saying this, right? This is not what he's talking about. What he was saying was that God can take a heart of stone and change it and turn a hard-hearted unbeliever into his own child. Greater miracle than making a rock into a living being. 
right? He was saying that God can save people no matter who they are, no matter who their parents, no matter what their background, no matter what their race, no matter what they've done, no matter how badly they've sinned. So that leads to key concept number two, write it in. God can raise up true believers even among people who have a heart of stone. What an amazing concept. So let's return. Look, he goes farther. He goes later. He goes beyond. He goes to rocks. He makes dead things alive. This is the God of the Bible. So let's turn to lost guy number three, Saul of Tarsus. Think about him. He hated Christ, and he intended to destroy his followers. By his own testimony, he was the chief of sinners, There was blood on his hands. Paul had gone too far. There was no hope for him. But look what God did. Here's your blanks. God changed a murderer into the greatest missionary in history. Isn't he an amazing saving God? You see, this is an incredible truth. Our God can raise the dead. He can bring rocks to life. He can make stones into sons. With our God, no one is beyond saving And see, this is the greatest mystery in all the world, right? Why would the perfect creator look down on selfish, sinful people and want to save us? Why? Because that's who he is. At the essence, he is savior. See, God has many attributes, but as you look through the entire scope of history, more than anything, he is savior. He is savior, my friends. That's why he'll pursue lost people to the ends of the earth, and as we're going to see, even farther. So, what are the appropriate responses to a message like this? There are two. First, perhaps you're the person who God has been pursuing, and you've never really given your heart fully to Christ. Or perhaps you've walked with God in the past, but you've strayed from him, and this morning you know God's calling you. You know it's time to stop running from him, and maybe you've heard his call to salvation before, but you've figured that you'd always have another chance. But Scripture is brutally honest to the person who hears the call of God and says, ah, I'll always have another chance. Scripture calls that person a fool because this is what the text says in Hebrews, today, 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 if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart Today is the day of salvation. The second response that would be appropriate to this morning's message is every believer here that has family or friends or colleagues who are running from God, they may be hard-hearted. They may have gone too far, and you may think there's just no hope. You know what's horrible about me? When, as I've been preparing, I've been saying, okay, Lord, please forgive me again. I, I work with academic musicians I, I, my whole career. I've told you, they're the most arrogant people on the wor- in the world except for the academic musicians at U of A. Um, but other than that, they would, never be, well, they would never listen to what Josiah plays. Of course, they're academic musicians, right? But they're in, in, and you know what's sad is when I, when I read that or as I was working through that, we, that, I know people like that. What's sad is like a whole bunch of pictures come into my mind and I say, Lord, forgive me. And all these unforgivable people who have way too much and they're too cool and they would never need God because they got everything. And yet, all of us know people like this and once we repent ourselves of our arrogance, our hearts should break for them. Um, 
There's a few of you, now's the time if you have the bookmarks. Uh, I would have had the bookmarks passed out before, but start passing out and not passing out. Start passing the bookmarks out. Uh, And Andy, hand them to some other, everybody get one of these. Um, And this is going to be one of these things, let me just tell you in advance, it's going to be one of the things that as you're writing stuff down on this bookmark, don't look at the person next to you, especially because then you'll laugh after you see what's on the bookmark. They may be writing your name down. They may think you're the lost guy that nobody can save, okay? So uh, as those are being passed out, everybody please take that and find a writing instrument. And um, just start, uh, let, me, let me tell you what it says, and then uh, start uh, asking the Spirit of God to tell you who to write down. This is completely private. Ignore everybody else's, right? It says, it's very simple. I commit to consistently pray for the salvation of And I commit to look for opportunities to witness to. Just start writing down names. As you think of those who, don't be judgmental. Just say those you know who, you know God's been chasing them. Or they've been very lost. Or they're so far from God because the fruit shows that they don't belong to Jesus. I want you to just ask the Spirit for a minute or two here. Just start writing down names of people that you will commit to pray for because we give up too easily, and people who you will look for an opportunity as the Spirit makes available to witness to them. As you're doing that, I want you to listen now to the, to the story of Tom Skinner. Um, as you think of more things, feel free to keep writing, okay? Turn it over so people can't see it when you're not writing on it. And, and um, Listen to this. Tom Skinner grew up in Harlem, uh, I think the 50s or something like that, 50s, 60s. Uh, When he was a senior in high school, he was approached by a a member of the largest gang in Harlem. Harlem, think about it, two and a half square miles, one million residents at that time in two and a half square miles. It it was a disaster. Um, And the largest gang, this guy approached him and he said, hey, you know, he was a big star on the football team and all that kind of stuff. And he said, okay, he joined. Um, And within two months, he realized he was tougher than any of them. So he challenged the leader of the gang, which meant you had to beat him in a knife fight. Um, And he beat him in the knife fight. And then two others said, oh, this this kid's just a high schooler. No problem. Two other guys challenged him, and he beat both of them in a knife fight. So within two months of joining this gang, Tom Skinner is the lead guy in the largest gang in Harlem. Um, Listen to the story from his words. Let me read a little bit from one of his books. I got to the point where I could take a broken bottle, twist it in a person's face, and not bat an eye. I ended up with 22 notches on the handle of my knife, which meant that I had stabbed 22 different people, some of them many times. All that mattered to me was that Tom Skinner got what Tom Skinner wanted. How I got it made absolutely no difference to me. I began mapping out a strategy for what was to be the largest gang fight ever to take place in New York. Listen to this, his, his, his own words. The Harlem Lords, here's the, here's the five, this is legit. The Harlem Lords, the Imperials, the Crowns, the Sportsmen, and the Jesters would unite to fight a bunch of gangs on the other side of New York City. If I succeeded in this fight, I would have emerged as the leader of an alliance of gangs that would have made me the most powerful leader in New York City. He doesn't even qualify it as the most powerful gang leader. 
the most powerful leader in New York City. The night of the big war, I had my radio on, pervenient grace. See that face? When you turn to Wesley's Theological Dictionary, Tom Skinner's picture could be there for pervenient grace. Look at this. The night of the big war, I had my radio on, I was listening to my favorite DJ, when an unscheduled program interrupted the broadcast. Isn't God amazing? A man began to speak from 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed pass away. Behold, all things have become new. He went on to say that we're all separated from God by our sin, but that Jesus Christ bore my sin on the cross. And when he shed his blood, he did it to forgive me. And he rose from the dead to live in me. I responded immediately. I fell on my knees behind, beside my bed. I bowed my head next to my radio and I said this very simple prayer. Lord, I don't understand all of this, but I know that I'm separated from you. And if what I'm hearing is true, I now give you the right to take over my life. But I still had a problem, he goes on. I love this. He does uh, almost a chapter on some of this in one of his books. I still had a problem. I was a gang leader. So the following night, I told the entire gang I had committed my life to Jesus Christ and could no longer be in the gang. Two nights later, the number two man cornered me and told me that when I had gotten up and walked out of the gang the first night, he was going to put his knife in my back, but he couldn't move. He said something or someone glued him to his seat. I shared with him that Jesus Christ had done in my life. Two days after my own commitment to Christ, the number two guy in the gang made a decision for Christ. Within a year, seven other leaders from our gang committed themselves to Christ, and we formed a little band that began to study the Word of God together under the leadership of some mature Christians. That's not where the story ends. Within a few years, Tom Skinner sensed God's call to be an evangelist, and over the next four decades, Tom Skinner, Tom Skinner was a part of tens of thousands of people coming to Christ. Think about this. Tom Skinner had run too far from God. He had run almost all the way to the gates of hell. It was too late to save Tom Skinner unless, unless our God can save those who've run all the way to the gates of hell. Pastor Josiah, come on up. As we close, I'd like us to think about one of the biblical names for God. It'll be up on the screen. Yahweh Shammah, one of the Hebrew names for God. This name means God is there. It's an unqualified there. God is there. And what does this mean? No matter how far a human runs from him, God is there. No matter where they've been, God is there. No matter how far they've run into the darkness, God is even there. So as you think about the names that you're writing down this morning, you might say, you don't know who's on my list. They, they've rejected God too many times. It's just too late. And you know what? Maybe you've been praying for them for years. But look at the words of King David. It'll be on the screen from one, Psalm 139. Look at this. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. But here's the surprise. 
But even if I make my bed in Sheol, you want to put that into Greek through Latin to English? Even if I make my bed in Hades, you, O God, are there. What does this mean? Our God says, if they miss the Passover, I'll still offer my salvation. If they run far from me, I'll still offer my salvation. They can't get away from me. I'll always pursue them. I will not let them go. I'll chase them to the ends of the earth. And even if they run to the very gates of hell itself, I am still Yahweh Shammah. I am there. Look at the names again that you've written down. Have you prayed for them for so long that you've given up? You know what? We give up way too early because we have a God who never gives up. This morning, the word calls us to announce to the enemy, I will not give up on praying for their salvation, and I will not stop taking them to God, and I will not lose hope that God can redeem them. Friends, if Jesus can save a Saul of Tarsus, and if Jesus can save a Tom Skinner, then Jesus can save anyone. Some of us need to confess that we've given up. Some of us need to confess that we've tried to save them ourselves. (laughs) We've forgotten that there's only one Savior, and it's not us. And now in faith, it's time for us to believe that the God who can raise children of Abraham up from cold, hard stones can soften the hardest heart of even the unsavable. Let's stand together. Bow your heads, let's pray. Lord, you know every name that we've written down this morning. Some have written down parents or children or spouses, other family members, neighbors, work associates. Thank you, Lord, that you have never given up on these names. Forgive us for the times when we've given up. Father, We covenant to frequently and fervently pray for your grace to be working in their lives to set them up. Set them up like Sergius Paulus. Set them up like the Apostle Paul. Set them up like Tom Skinner, Lord. We pray that the Holy Spirit will so powerfully convict them that they'll stop running and they'll turn around and fall into the saving arms of Jesus. Lord, in faith, we're already beginning to thank you for that incredible day that's coming when we'll celebrate the new birth. And now, we're asking you for the impossible, Lord. We're asking you to irresistibly pursue the people whose names we've written down. We're not asking for something easy. We're asking for hearts of stone to become soft. We're asking for a Saul of Tarsus kind of miracle, Lord. We're asking for a Tom Skinner kind of miracle in our day. Lord Jesus, Come and save. As we close, we're going to have a time of prayer. The altars will be open. And in a congregation of this size, there are definitely people who need to stop running from God to give up the fight and to fall in the arms of Jesus right now. And there are probably many believers who've written down names that you're committing to pray for. And you may just want to bring your list and lay it at the altar before God. So as we lift up our voices to our great God.
who is mighty to save. 